Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 8, and we're looking down to verse 11. This is the fourth commandment as we're making our way through the second book of the Bible. We are in that section in which we are considering the Ten Commandments, and we have looked at the prologue to the Ten Commandments. We have considered the first three of the Ten Commandments, and now we're looking at the fourth commandment this morning. And I would just note and I've alluded to this, and you almost certainly know this, but the Ten Commandments are divided into two tables. The first four commandments dealing with our responsibility, our moral responsibility before God vertically, and the last six commandments dealing with our responsibility toward our fellow human beings, our fellow image bearers. Um, And yet, all Ten Commandments belong together. And I would remind you that James tells us In the book of James, whoever breaks one is guilty of breaking all of them. And if you were not here for that introductory sermon to the Ten Commandments, I likened it to one of the panes of glass on these French doors. If if something were thrown through that, even though one part is broken, the whole thing is broken. And that's the way the Ten Commandments work. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 verse 5 tells us that covetousness, That is the violation of the 10th commandment. Covetousness is idolatry. That's a violation of the first commandment. They come back together. And in many respects, every commandment in the 10 commandments is a violation of the first commandment. And I would also just briefly remind you that our Lord Jesus, when he expounds the force of the moral law and gives what is the ultimate purpose of it, tells us that the first four commandments can be summarized in the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, something we have never done, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, something which we have also never done. And yet what God wants us as redeemed sinners to aspire to and to pursue and to be committed to. And so with those things as background, we are looking this evening at Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. And now the Lord through Moses writes, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then I would invite you to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. You may not know this, but Deuteronomy 5 is the second giving of the Ten Commandments. And the word Deuteronomy, you also may not know, simply means second law. It is the second giving of the law of God. So that God is reinforcing the commandments that he gave Israel. And um, since we're looking at the fourth commandment, and I would just note this evening that there is only one difference in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and then Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, and it is found here with regard to the fourth commandment. Beginning in verse 12. Moses writes, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. 
But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there are certain things built into the very fabric of creation that can't be changed. There are certain things that God has so built in and constituted creation with that they are, they are immutable, they are unchangeable. One of those things is a seven-day work week. Uh, maybe and maybe not, uh, you have or have not thought about that. Why are we stuck, as it were, on a seven-day week? Why do we have a seven-day week? Um, during the French Revolution uh, between 1793 and 1805, um, the, uh, the French uh, officials tried to change the calendar. Uh, they actually called it the French Revolutionary Calendar or the French Republican Calendar. And they, they tried, they attempted to change the, uh, the calendar from a seven-day week to a ten-day week. Now, one of the big reasons they did this is in their project in trying to rid society of the remnants of religion and especially of the liturgical calendar. And with a special view to getting rid of the Sabbath day, they wanted to totally renovate time. And ultimately, it was a failed project because it is uh, it is a futile exercise to go against those things God has built into the fabric of creation and uh, on this 10-day work week, the horses and the oxen began to die because they were being overworked. Because God has so constituted things that this world must run on a seven-day rotation. Um, even the Babylonians, it wasn't just the Israelites, though they had this by way of revelation. Even the Babylonians understood that the, the, um, the astronomical cycles demanded a seven-day week. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we come to the fourth commandment that God is reminding Israel that at creation, one of the main creation ordinances that he gave to man when he created him was a seven-day week in which man was to work six and to rest one. Um, It's interesting, really really since the late... 19th century and the rise of dispensationalism, um, the church in in the Western world and the evangelical church has largely rejected the Sabbath commandment. They've largely rejected the fourth commandment. And and I would argue much to the detriment of the church and much to the detriment of Christians because the Christian church, and we're going to see this tonight, the Christian church understood the blessing of the fourth commandment. They understood the necessity of of taking one day in seven and setting it apart from the ordinary work and routine and labor and entering into the worship and the delight and the joy of being 
in the presence of God, under the ministry of God, worshiping God, serving his people, and resting from those ordinary affairs. And that when that blessing is removed, even though people oftentimes think they're liberating themselves from something, they are actually losing the blessing that God wanted man to experience at creation and then in the work of redemption. Now, as we look at the fourth commandment tonight, I want us to consider three things. I want us first to consider the requirement, and then I want us to consider the rationale, and then I want us to consider the redemptive purpose of this commandment, the requirement, the rationale, and the redemptive purpose. Purpose. Well, as I've already noted, there is a moral requirement to this commandment. It was not something that God gave Israel at the foot of the mountain that he had never given man before. As I've already noted, this was a creation ordinance. It was something just like marriage between a man and a woman. Or the work ordinance that, that man was to work the ground to be fruitful. Or the reproductive procreation ordinance where human beings made in the image of God were to bring forth image bearers and were to multiply and to, to, to fill the earth with the glory of God and a representation of him just like those other ordinances. The Sabbath ordinance had a very distinct purpose and it was binding on man from the time of Adam. Now, There are many who will say it was only for the Jewish people. And I will say this evening, there was something distinctively ceremonial about the fourth commandment in the Mosaic law that was only for Israel. And that was that it was on the seventh day in the old covenant. That is ceremonial. But the moral principle of giving to God one day in seven has been binding on all men for all time. And we know this because Jesus himself said when he was disputing with the self-righteous Pharisees who loved to take the other nine commandments and set them on the fourth commandment and then build all kinds of extra rules and regulations and to go around as the Sabbath police making sure that nobody had a good time, that, that as Jesus disputed with them, he said at one point, don't you know that the Sabbath was made for man? He didn't say for the Jews. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus will also declare that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the moral requirement is uh, really seen in that this commandment lasts till the end of time. Um, You know, one of the things that we have to recognize in the moral requirement is that God is not simply requiring that we stop working and enter into physical rest. That is also often a mistake. Physical rest is part of it. It is good. I took a 25 minute nap today and it was glorious y'all. I had a professor who called it the covenanters nap. I don't care what you call it. It was really good. It was holy and pure and good. And, and sometimes when we read the Puritans and they talk about not spending the day in idleness, we can sometimes miss that it includes physical rest. We can enjoy physical rest, but there are many people in our day who take the Sabbath command, they take away the moral requirement, and they say, well, we all need a day where we physically rest. That is not the main requirement of the fourth commandment. B.B. Warfield, the great lion of Princeton, said physical rest 
is not the true essence of the Sabbath. By the way, the word Sabbath, Shabbat, in Hebrew means rest, simply. That is not the true essence of Sabbath, nor the end of its institution. It is the means to a further end. Physical rest from our labors is a means to a further end, Warfield says, which constitutes the real Sabbath rest. He says we are to rest from our own things that we may give ourselves to the things of God. We are to rest from our own things that we may give ourselves to the things of God. Just like in the Old Covenant, God required that his people give a tenth of all that he gave them financially and materially to him as an act of worship. He has required that we give a seventh of our time to him for worship and for serving him and for blessing his people and giving ourselves wholly to the Lord and to the things of the Lord. A friend of mine is a Scottish theologian, um, and, and he'll note that as you go through the Old Testament, the Sabbath day is often called the day of the Lord, the Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord. And then in the New Covenant, John will be in the spirit, Revelation chapter 1, on the Lord's day. That's why we call this the Lord's day. And, and my friend will sometimes say when people have a problem with the moral requirement of the fourth commandment, their problem is not with the Lord's day. It's with the Lord of the Lord's day. I found that to be a very potent way of putting it. When people have a problem with the fourth commandment, it's not with the day, but with the Lord of the Lord's day. Now, very briefly, it is to be a full day set aside to the Lord. Um, I'm not going to get into debates about where you start and end that, like so many in church history have done. There's a fascinating article in a volume on the Westminster Confession of Faith in the 21st century on the Sabbath, in which the author says that if you had gone through the Netherlands in the 17th century, they really took the Sabbath day seriously and probably didn't argue over anything more than that and what you can do and what you can't do and what's right and wrong. And he said, I would venture to say that if you went through the Netherlands in the 17th century, you would find 10,000 different ways people would say you had to observe the Sabbath. That is not that is not what we're going to do. We are looking at the general moral principle. And the Lord very clearly sets that out. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Um, Mike Cunio, who we prayed for tonight, mentored me 20 years ago. And he would say to me, Nick, if you can't get all your work done in six days, then you have taken on too much. So if I feel like I need to violate the Lord's day, in order to do my work, then I have not done my work well, or I have sought to do too much when God has said, this is the time allotted, and this is the time in which you can get the things you need to done. What's also interesting about the fourth commandment is it's not just a moral commandment that we set aside one day in seven for worship, it also structures what we do with the rest of the week. It is a commandment of the ethical principle that we are to work diligently, that we are to give ourselves to diligent labor during the week, but that we are to set aside that one day in seven to worship the Lord. Um, now, I want to just note that 
while this commandment is binding on us, on those in our homes, on those within the purview of our responsibility to govern the work of others, and that is very clear, that the Sabbath day is to be a delight. The, the moral principle of the Sabbath day is that it's to be a delight. The binding nature of it is not to be laborious. It's not for you to sit around and be like, well, I can do that. I can't do this. I can do that. They shouldn't do this. I'm doing this. That's not the, that's not the point. In fact, when we come to Isaiah 58, listen to this, verses 13 and 14, one of the greatest commentaries on the fourth com- commandment in Scripture The Lord says to Israel, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and you call the Sabbath a delight. You see, the moral moral requirement is that we call the Sabbath a delight. The holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then You shall delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, I have had more conversations with men coming into various presbyteries to either transfer in or be ordained that when it comes to the fourth commandment, they want to tell you everything they think it's not. And I almost never hear them say, we are to delight in the Lord the entire day. Now, that doesn't mean we're to have 12-hour worship services. Praise the Lord. Amen? I know they do that in Africa and some other countries. And and it doesn't necessarily mean, and I'm going to be careful here, that God has commanded that we have to have morning and evening worship. But we are to worship him And we are not to just observe, as another one of my friends in Scotland has said to me over the years, Nick, too many Christians only want to observe the Lord's half day. It is the Lord's day. And the whole day is to be taken up in delighting in the Lord, in worship, in rest, in service, in deeds of mercy and necessity. And that means there's a whole lot that can fall under that umbrella But what cannot fall under that umbrella is unnecessary work and recreation that we can do on the other six days. Um, It's always struck me as remarkable how much intellectual ammunition people will try to bring to cram things into what they think they can do on the Lord's Day that they probably shouldn't be doing on the Lord's Day instead of just delighting in the Lord and resting and serving and worshiping and fellowshipping and other deeds of mercy and necessity. Um, We literally have to ask ministers, do you think it's okay to have season tickets to an NFL game and go to those on Sunday? Because that's how far we are from understanding what a blessing the Lord's Day is. Um, The Puritans used to call the Sabbath day, the Christian Sabbath, the market day of the soul. You know, when I leave here on Sunday night, I'm tired. I'm very tired. But I am also very full. And I hope that you're full on the ministry of the word. That's what God wants. He wants you to feed. He wants to feed you, as Isaiah says, with the rich heritage of Jacob, your father. He wants to make you ride on the heights of the earth, feeding you with the good things 
of his word in the gospel. You know, we sometimes say to one another, I don't know how people that don't know the Lord make it through life when tragedy strikes or hardship in some excessive way. And in the same way, I often feel like I don't know how believers, professing believers, make it through life who don't love and really want to make the most out of the Lord's day. It's one of the greatest blessings God has given us in this life. Um, When the psalmist talks in uh, one particular psalm of the saints making their pilgrimage, and each one passes from strength to strength, a lot of the old theologians used to say that's shorthand for one Lord's day to the next, to the next, until we're in heaven. These are, these are days of rest and strengthening to strengthen us on the way because by Tuesday, we're all pretty torched. I mean, let's just be honest. By Tuesday, we've forgotten half of what we heard. We're doing twice as bad as we thought we'd be doing. And we need these days. And so there is a moral requirement because God wants us to understand that this is to be a massive benefit to us. Now, secondly, there is a rationale for this. And I read both Exodus 20, 8 through 11, as well as Deuteronomy 5, 12 and following. And I noted to you at the outset that that is the only place where there's a difference. And I remember as a young Christian reading this and thinking, wow, that is one of the most amazing things in the Bible. In Exodus 20, the Lord says, you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy because... In six days, I made the heavens and the earth and all that's in it, and I rested. I set that pattern for you at creation, and you are to imitate me as image bearers of me. Not that God needed rest. We need it. But he set that pattern for us to follow that example. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's very interesting. The Lord gives the moral requirement to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then he says, remember that you were a slave in Egypt out of which which bondage I brought you. And so he is saying that the other purpose of the fourth commandment is redemption, creation and redemption. Uh, Listen to this. The Westminster divines in the larger catechism answer 121 said, the word remember is said at the beginning of the fourth commandment partly because of the great benefit of remembering it. We being thereby helped in our preparation to keep it and in keeping it better to keep all the rest of the commandments and to continue a thankful remembrance of the two great benefits of creation and redemption. Isn't that interesting? They're saying by remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy, we are being helped to remember the two great works of God, creation and redemption. You know, this is why the Lord's Day is to be rich in focusing on God as creator and redeemer. It's why Christ should be so exalted and the gospel should be so permeating through our services, through our conversations and our meditations. Um, By the way, this is why Jesus did so many of his healings on the Sabbath day. Um, I don't know if you've ever meditated on this. Why did Jesus heal so many physical infirmities on the old covenant Sabbath? Because he was showing that he had come to be the restorer of creation and the redeemer 
of those who are destroyed by sin and misery. And remember, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they hated that Jesus was being merciful, that they hated that Jesus was bringing rest from the misery of this life and the, and the miseries that sin brought into this world. Um, and Jesus, in, in Matthew 11, he makes it so clear that what he's doing in healing those physical infirmities and, and, and the enemies of God and Christ are railing against him for doing this and giving men and women rest for their souls from the, the, the burden of living under the misery that sin brought into this world and affected them in such a great way. Remember, at the end of Matthew 11, he, he will stand up and he'll say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the Sabbath day was to remind you of your need for redemption. And he, as the Lord of the Sabbath, comes to say, I have come to give you the rest that your soul needs by laboring for you on the cross in the work of redemption. Now, I want us to finally consider the redemptive purpose because there is so much here. Books have been written on this. As Jesus teaches us that the true purport of the Sabbath day is for us to see him as the rest provider, giving spiritual rest to our burdened souls. As the one who came to take the burden of our sin upon himself on the cross, as the one who came to take the guilt of our sin on himself, as the one who came to break the power of sin, the one who came to give rest to our weary souls, he also exhibits for us in all that he does that that he is the Sabbath-keeping Christ. Um, You know, in, in one respect, it's been put this way that At creation, the Sabbath day was supposed to be Father's Day for Adam. It was supposed to be Father's Day. He was to celebrate and love and worship and praise the God and Father who had created him, given him life, blessed him with so much bounty. And and God had set that seventh day before Adam, not just as a reminder of what happens week by week by week, but that Adam understood that there was something higher and better to enter into, that there was, there was an, if I can put it this way, an eschatological, an eternal Sabbath, that there was a, there was a consummate Sabbath. And had Adam obeyed, had Adam, as the representative of mankind, uh, obeyed God and fulfilled the covenant of works, he would have merited the blessings of it, which would have meant he and everyone who would ever descend from him, that's you, would have entered into that end-time rest. How do we know that? Because the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 and 4 tells us that. He, He cites Psalm 95, and he says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as those in the rebellion, and they did not enter into my rest. And the writer of Hebrews says there still remains a rest. They didn't enter into it, but it still remains the prospect of eternal life and and eternal joy and eternal rest. And, And 
the, the everlasting delighting in God, it still remains. And in chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says, he who has ceased from his works has entered into God's rest. And the question we ought to have is, how do we go from Adam failing that rest and failing to honor God as his father and not taking us into that rest to God giving this commandment throughout human history and us acknowledging that moral requirement but realizing it's pointing to something else? How do we get from there to there? And, and the scripture is telling us how we do that. It's because Christ is going to come. And he's going to labor for our redemption. He's going to work for our redemption. Um, Remember at creation, when God looks back over everything that he had made, he said, it is good. And when Christ hung on the cross and he looked back at what he had labored to do for you and for me, he cried out, it is finished. And then Jesus is buried And by the way, many theologians have noted this. Jesus rested dead in the tomb on the Sabbath day, on the Old Covenant Sabbath. And what that is showing when his lifeless body lay in the grave and the work of redemption was done was that he had secured for his people the everlasting rest for which they longed. And when he rose on the new covenant Sabbath, and then he appears to his disciples on the first day of the week, which is why we worship on the first day of the week, he is saying, I have finished the work that my father has given me to do. I have rested from that work. I have secured entrance into that everlasting rest. And by faith in me and faith alone in me, you too will enter into that rest. Listen to this. One old theologian put it this way. Christ is Lord of the Sabbath, and after the completion of his work, he rested on the old covenant Sabbath. But he rose on the new covenant Sabbath, and through his resurrection, which is the pledge to the world of the fruit of his redeeming work, he made this day the Lord's day for his church to be observed by it till the captain of its salvation shall return. And having finished the judgment upon all his foes to the very last, shall lead it to the rest of that eternal Sabbath, which God prepared for the whole creation through his own resting after the completion of the heaven and the earth. Isn't that marvelous? If if you look at the Lord's Day as just a legal obligation, you will never get this. If you cast away the moral requirement, and refuse to remember the Lord's day and keep it holy and call it a delight, you will not get this. You see, this day was not meant for you to go through and check off boxes of what you can and can't do, even though there are moral requirements of what we should and should not do on the Lord's day. This day is meant to be a delight to our souls to fix the eyes of our hearts on Christ, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, who has secured the eternal Sabbath for us, so that by faith in him, we will enter into that everlasting rest and forever delight in the Lord and have joy in our souls. Listen to this. I love this. I'm going to leave you with this. B.B. Warfield again says, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him. 
the Old Covenant Sabbath. That's why we're not Seventh-day Adventists, by the way. Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's Day out of the grave with him on resurrection morning to prefigure the consummate Sabbath that he wants you to enter into by faith and faith alone in Christ. Now, I just want to say this as we close tonight. No matter where we are, because I will say this briefly, none of us have kept this commandment ever like we are required to. And if you think you have, you are miserably deceived. None of us have kept this commandment as we have never kept any of the other commandments as we ought, which is why Christ has died for it, our our transgressions of it. And yet, no matter where we are tonight, and whether this is brand new to you, or whether you just want to grow in your appreciation for it, the Lord wants us to collectively call his day a delight, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, to set apart this day from the other days and what we do, and to have our souls fed with the rich food of the Lord Jesus as he is offered to us in Scripture. Um, That is such a wonderful thing. What a God we have. Because I'm going to say this as we close. If we didn't have all this, you and I would never cease from our work to enter into that kind of rest. Because we have deeply ingrained in us that we have to work for our salvation. And God gives us this day to say, you cannot work for it. It will be by grace and grace alone. It will be in Christ and Christ alone. And I've given you this day so that you can taste and see his goodness and that promise of entering into that rest. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge that we have not loved this commandment as we ought because we have not loved you as we ought. We ask tonight that you would forgive us for the many ways in which we have not kept your day holy, the many ways in which we have not remembered it, and the many ways in which we have perhaps sought to keep it legally and not with an eye to the Lord Jesus, with great delight in you, our bountiful and good God who has promised to give us an everlasting rest. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son as the Lord of the Sabbath and that, Lord Jesus, you have fulfilled this for us, that you have kept it for us, that you have fulfilled its purpose, that you have secured that eternal rest for us. We thank you that you are the one who has said, I will give you rest for your souls if you will come to me. And so in all that we do, we pray that on this day, you would give us grace that we might be coming, that we might be worshiping, that we might be resting, and that we might be delighting in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.